Good morning. Nice to see everybody. We have a lot to cover, so I want to invite you to take out your Bibles, take out the handout sheet that was given to you at the front door, and we can begin. We're in 2018, right? The year of wisdom. Good. All right. Five of you knew that. Praise the Lord. The year of wisdom, that means that throughout the entire year, we are going to be turning things upside down and breaking things open and re-examining them from a different perspective. That means a lot of newness, a lot of revelation, a lot of learning. Well, we are also going through different books of the Bible, and this first one that we're going through is the book of Job. Yeah, we know that. We are now in the series called the Knowing God series. Why? Because Job isn't really about Job. The book of Job is actually about God. And so the more that we learn about him, the more that we understand him clearly, the more we can understand ourselves as well. And so as we're clearing up that picture, I have a new element that we need to study because I took the book of Job, broke it all up into eight pieces. We are now doing piece number two in this. And this piece is called the great cosmic confusion. We're going to be talking about the idea of what? God and Satan in this great battle. So I have a question for you as we lead into the fill in the blank. What's the difference between a battle and a beatdown? What is the difference between a war and a mugging? You understand what I mean? And, and here's what I'm saying. That in any given battle or any given war, there is a question as to outcome. For example, World War One, we all see it in retrospect and we say, oh, I knew how it was going to go. No, you didn't. When you were in it, you didn't know how it was going to go. World War Two, we did not know how it was going to go. And that uncertainty breeds fear. I think that in any true war, now, if once again, it was a mugging or a beatdown. Let's say I'm a bad guy. I decide to grab eight of my friends and I'm going to go attack you. You happen to have a broken leg and are wearing handcuffs. Now we're going to assume that that outcome is relatively clear, right? I may still struggle, but all the rest of my guys will probably do some real damage. All right. And what happens in that scenario is it looks like it's so lopsided that there's no real question of outcome. Why am I saying this? Because we're going to be talking about a battle between God and Satan. Is it really a battle? Here's the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you. There's no fear in this fight. There's no fear in this fight. God wrote how it's going to go and wrote the end of it. Let me read you a quote by Donald Barnhouse. He said this, can we call it a battle of war? When one side has all the wisdom and all the power and all the might and all the dominion, and when that side knows before it all begins exactly what will happen so that every detail is a simple fulfillment of an eternal plan. Is it really a war? Now, it's a war between us And different spiritual forces, different things within us. We war against the world, the flesh, the devil. These are enemies to us. But let me be very clear on something. It is not a great war between God and Satan. 
So what I'm going to try to do is take everything that we've maybe learned throughout our history about who Satan is and how Satan works and what went down, and I'm going to try to flip that upside down. We have probably been more educated in Satan and Lucifer by Dante's Inferno and Milton's Paradise Lost than anything in the Bible. How do I know that? Well, if any of you have ever believed that Satan runs hell, that's not biblical. Uh, If any of us have ever thought he prefers to wear red, (laughs) if any of us have ever thought, well, I wonder how he sits with that pointy tail. Those things are not biblical. Those things are Hollywood. Those things are literature. They're not, they're not true. As a matter of fact, a reading of scripture with the wrong perspective makes it seem awfully confusing. We're going to read a story where God and Satan are in dialogue. Doesn't seem to be any animosity whatsoever. The other interesting thing is y'all remember the story of the Gadarene demoniac. Gadarene demoniac. Everyone's like, no, nobody calls it that. What we call it around Bridgeway is called the naked demon guy. Anybody remember the naked demon guy? Oh, yeah. Everyone goes, oh, yeah, of course I remember that guy. Here's the story of the naked demon guy, if you're brand new. This guy possessed by thousands of demons uh, who's lived in the tombs and cuts himself. It's this terrible story. He comes and finds out that Jesus is in the territory. He runs before him and falls down on the ground in submission When demons come in contact with Jesus, many times they say, are you here to torment us before the appointed time? They're scared out of their minds at who Jesus is. But then if you remember that naked demon guy story, Jesus says, you guys got to go. You got to get out. Remember that? And then what do they do? They're like, wait, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. Before you kick us out, can we go into the pigs? Do you guys remember that? And Jesus is like, "Mm, sure. And you're like, wait, 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 hold on, hold on. I thought you guys were like, ah, angry. And there was animosity. There was this big fight and all this stuff. And Jesus is having this crazy relaxed dialogue with these guys. Now, what happens? They go into the pigs and the pigs run down the hill, die in the water. And you go, okay, so what's your point? Do you remember what happens when a demon is cast out of something. The Bible says it goes around and looks for a new home. So what did Jesus just do? Release thousands of demons to go find a new house. Now you're looking and you're like, oh, I don't understand. That's why we have this lesson, right? We, we constantly are looking at things and it's not how you think it is. So what I'm gonna do today, if we are able to squish it all in in time, is that I'm going to give you a recap of the portion of Job that we will study in a a paraphrase version, like the Lance version, right? Super fast. Then we're going to spend the majority of our time setting the context. Now, that means that I'm going to tell you a story that begins before the beginning of time. I'm going to give you the big picture, and then we're going to go right back to that same story in Job, and we're going to read it together with a whole new context, and things will begin to make sense. Y'all with me? All right, good, good. About 43 of you are. All right, considering that there's almost a thousand here, that's sad. Here we go. Let's move forward. All right, the story. Uh, If you remember last week when I shared with you a recap of the entire book of Job, I mentioned that 
A lot of it starts in God's, what, staff meeting, right? So God has a big heavenly staff meeting and all the angels and heavenly beings are coming before him and, and they're telling him what they've been doing because every creature answers to God. Can we be clear on that? Well, sure enough, one of them there named or nicknamed Satan, the accuser, the prosecutor, he steps forward and God says, where you been? He's like, you know, around. And he said, have you considered my servant Job? So who brings up Job? God. All right. So God brings up Job says he's my best of the best. And Satan says, well, of course he is. And in front of everyone, he says, the only reason he worships you is you give him health and wealth. The only reason he worships you is you give him stuff. You've had this tremendous hedge of protection around him. So yeah, of course he likes you. You take that stuff away and he's not going to like you anymore. God says, I will accept that challenge in front of these cloud of witnesses. Go ahead. Let it play out. Don't touch him, but you can touch all of his stuff. Well, we all know the story. All 10 of his children are killed. All of his wealth is removed. All of his servants are taken away. All of his animals are gone. Everything that he had, and he had a lot, was removed. Job falls down and worships and says, naked I came here, naked I'm going out. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, that is not the normal response that some of us have when we have a hard time. We'll get into that. But it says... In the next staff meeting, which I'm trying to figure out, are these weekly? Are they like, how long are we waiting for these staff meetings? You know what I mean? Like God's like, well, it's going to be a while, right? We only do those twice a year. Uh, it, the next staff meeting, God has everyone march up in front of him. And he says, hey, Satan, where you been? He's like, you know. And he goes, have you seen my servant Job? He's still with me. Satan said, well, yeah, obviously, because you didn't let me touch him. Any man can lose stuff, but if he gets affected personally, well, then he's going to deny you to your face. And God says, I accept that challenge. Go ahead, carry it out on Job. Do not kill him. He said, all right. Well, he comes in and afflicts sores on Job from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. And he just sits in the ashes and scrapes himself with pottery. Now, this is where our story is going to pause for today. Now, you look at that and that brings up questions, does it not? Are you not in some ways a little nervous going, so does God do this like all the time? He's looking for anyone that scores high in church, right? And he's like, hey, that person worships pretty good. You know what I could do? Something terrible. And that's like the anti-incentive. to. That's not what's happening. As a matter of fact, you're going to find out that there is tremendous encouragement from this story not only do we need to have less anxiety we need to have greater confidence that's what we're going to learn all right now that is our story you're ready to go before time i'm going to tell you a long story so we bounce all the way back to a time that the bible says is Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All right, let me give you a disclaimer. I'm going to be sharing material that I agree with, that I think is accurate, and it makes most sense within the biblical record. However, I'm going to be pulling from the order of events and writings of a man named 
Donald Gray Barnhouse. He wrote a book in 1965 called The Invisible War. It made a big impact on my life, and I'm going to share it with you. However, here's a disclaimer. When I am reading God's word, God's word is right and accurate. When I am sharing opinion or speculation, whether it is mine or Dr. Barnhouse, everything gets filtered. Yes? Just because I said it doesn't make it right. I need all of us to be able to look at it critically with what you know about Scripture, and I need you to analyze it. When I present it out to you, a lot of it is speculation and putting pieces of the Bible together. There can be a lot of error that comes in there. So let's be very clear to analyze it based on God's word. Amen? All right. Having said that, here we go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. Now, it is believed by some, and myself included, that there is a gap between Genesis 1.1 and 1.2. Genesis 1.2 says, Now the earth had become formless and void, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, this is before the six days of creation, so where did the waters come from? I'm going to go through this whole thing. Most of you have heard, maybe, the gap theory when it talks about creation versus evolution. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm actually talking about the fall of Satan or the, the mess up of Lucifer and the resulting rebellion. By the time we get to the Garden of Eden, which is very soon thereafter, Satan is already a bad guy and he's already ticked off. When did that occur? Where did sin and evil begin? This is what we're going to be talking about. So, Let's pull it back. When God originally created the heavens and the earth, I believe that it was very different than what we know today. As a matter of fact, we're going to be reading passages that are going to describe Eden, and it doesn't look anything like what Adam and Eve walked through. It talks about the mountain of God. It talks about stones of fire. It talks about gems and all kinds of crazy things, things that look a lot like heaven in revelation so it's a it's a different place a different world i believe that he created a being that would be known as the prince of the earth the most beautiful and majestic of all god's creatures and creations and his name was lucifer he was a cherub now have you ever you kind of go oh he's one of those little fat babies no he is not a fat baby by the way if you know anything about me i have a huge aversion to the little baby cherubs. Those freak me out. Please don't have them around me. Now, I love fat babies. They rock. But please don't blend them with angels. It messes me up. But anyway, we'll move on. He was a cherub. Now you go, what, what does that mean? Well, you know it in the plural in the Old Testament as the cherubim. Cherubim merely means plural of cherub. So what do they do? They are the ones that hover around the throne of God. You said, I thought you said he was on earth he was but the heavenly being of sorts is that what a cherubim does is they are the ones that have access to the throne room they are the ones that hover around the throne of god they are the ones that are the curtains that cover the throne of god they're almost like bodyguards now you would say god does not need a bodyguard 
He's not in any danger. You're absolutely correct. I believe that they are protecting everyone from God. <laughs> he does not need a bodyguard. I think we need a bodyguard. If God's full glory was to emanate out, we have a big problem. Let me give you an example on why. You realize that the Hebrew word for cherubim and the Hebrew word for curtain are the same. Now you go, well, what do they have in common? Think about the temple and how it was designed in the Old Testament. Do you remember there was a big gold box that was super fancy called the Ark of the Covenant? Yeah. On the top of the Ark of the Covenant was called the mercy seat. That is where the presence of God would come down and dwell. What was on top of that lid but two cherubim with their wings outstretched towards one another? There was a curtain that no one could go past. Do you remember? Because that created the Holy of Holies. Do you know what was embroidered on that curtain? Cherubim. Why? Because it was the curtain of the curtain. And the idea was the glory of God was within and man was not, was not holy enough to get near it. So there was a curtain separating God and man. All right. Having said all of that, we simply want to say that in the angelic world, there appears to be a hierarchy and Lucifer was the biggest and baddest. Now you have to understand when he was created, there had never been another will but the will of God. The Trinity is always perfect and complete and holy. And as a matter of fact, there had never been rebellion anywhere in the universe. So Lucifer is created and boy, is he awesome. And he walks around this world and this is his domain and he is the prince of the world. And so he is thinking, man, I'm pretty good at this stuff. And what his job was, was to be the priest of the world. What does that mean? It means he was to convey God's will to God's creation. And then all praise that comes back, he was supposed to hand right back up to God. Why? Because God deserves all praise. Amen. All right. Now, what was he like? Let me just say this. Turn with me to Ezekiel 28, verse 11. Ezekiel 28, verse 11. <clears throat> As you are turning there, let me remind you of a fact. Satan is created. He has a definite beginning and a definite end. There is no such thing as two great superpowers fighting it out. There is no God and Satan who's going to win. There is the creator and there is created. There is God and there is stuff. We are stuff. Satan is stuff. So let's be very clear, there is no great battle between God and Satan. There is the creator and the rebel. Big difference. All right, let's keep that in mind. All right, let's take a look at what this guy was like. Ezekiel twenty-eight eleven. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. And every precious stone was your covering. Now, the stones I'm about to list are priestly stones that are normally on a garment that the priest would wear. So it was trying to say he had a priestly function. Okay? So it was things like sardius, topaz, diamonds, onyx, sapphire, things like that. Pick it up in verse 14. You were an anointed guardian cherub, for I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. 
You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. Verse 18. I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you. And I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. Now, that is a prophetic way to talk about the end as if it already occurred because it is a sure thing. I don't have time to go into why many scholars believe that is talking about Satan, but after reading it, can it really talk about anybody else? Well, it's kind of, nobody else fits that. So it says that Lucifer fell because of his trade. What was his trade? This is very important. I believe that his trade was a priestly function. What was that? As I said. He is to take the commands of God, convey them to creation, then take all the praise and give it back to God. That is his trade. What happens if he starts convincing himself that all the praise doesn't need to go back? What if he has been giving the commands and everybody's been very impressed by him? What if along the way he's thinking, I'm really good at this job. I don't know to what degree all the praise does need to go back up. What if he gives back 75% and keeps 25% for himself? You would say, no one would do that. We're doing it every day. Let me give you an example. So I have a lot of emails that come in throughout the year that say, Pastor Lance, being at Bridgeway and being able to hear your teaching has given me a very new way of looking at things. God has moved marvelously and I've had transformation in my life. I just wanted to thank you. That is totally appropriate and right. What am I supposed to do with that email? I'm supposed to take all that praise and I'm supposed to turn around and say, Jesus, look what you did, right? Am I not all to give it to him? It was all him. But what if along the way I start saying, I start saying to myself, you know what? You actually did a great job. Well, Lance, you're actually pretty impressive. I'm not so sure how much God was involved in that. You following? I have just gone down the exact same road that Lucifer did. So this idea of being impressed with ourselves and being detached from God and beginning to be saying, wow, I think I'm doing it. It's all me. That is that sin of pride that ruins everybody. So, all right, we keep moving. Once again, it says iniquity was found in you. Like spontaneous combustion, the ambition within Lucifer, who had never seen rebellion before, thought, wait a second, I think I can do more. I think if I'm the king of this world, I can be the king of heaven too. And he starts getting more and more cocky. And that's when we turn to Isaiah 14, 12. Turn to Isaiah 14, 12. Isaiah 14, 12 says this. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. 
you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Well, that's pretty intense, is it not? What did he just say? I want to dwell in heaven. I want to rule the angels. I want to be the king of the government of heaven. And I want to rise above the clouds. What are the clouds? But the glory of God. He says, lastly, I will be like the most high. That phrase, the most high, is the name El Elyon in Hebrew. And it means possessor of heaven and earth. He wants everything. How's that going to go? Probably not well. Can we all agree? What? He just declared war on God. All right. It ended up being a beatdown, okay? Because it was never going to go another way. God crushes his rebellion, but in his pride and independent call, it seems that he pulled one third of the heavenly beings to join him in wanting to be independent and do their own thing. Well, they were crushed. And for the first time, there were two wills at least in the universe, God and Satan. What's the problem with that? The minute another will entered the universe, time began. Why? Because when there is only one will, everything is right and perfect and there is no need for temporary anything. In the end, we're going to go back into no time in eternity because there will be one will again in the universe. But the minute there becomes another will, God says, I will let it go temporarily. Anytime you say temporarily, you are now in time and the clock is ticking. We have now entered time. In that rebellion, God spoke out judgment against it and he crushed the earth and melted it down into chaos and the lights went out. It's as if we're in a grand drama and the first act was over and the curtain closes. We do not know for how long, but the Bible opens in Genesis 1-2 with, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the darkness, over the waters of the deep that had been reduced to chaos. Satan was brooding in that darkness for who knows how long. His anger continuing to rise. Everything he wanted, he wanted heaven and earth, now he has nothing. He is now the king of nothing. And then God did in one phrase what Satan could never do. He said, let there be light. Click. And he began to reform the earth in what we know as the six days of creation. Now, why let Satan go? Why let him do this? Why not just crush him all at once? Well, let me read just a quote from The Invisible War. He said, God in essence said, we shall give this rebellion a thorough trial. We shall permit it 
to run its course. The universe shall see what a creature, though he may be the highest creature ever to spring from God's word, what he can do apart from him. In it, the spirit of independence shall be allowed to expand to the utmost. And the wreck and ruin that shall result will demonstrate to the universe and forever that there is no life, no joy, no peace apart from complete dependence upon the most high God, possessor of heaven and earth. Amen? Why would he let it go? Because if he puts down that rebellion silently, every creature has to rebel and rebel and rebel. There needs to be a full expression to say, do you understand now why you cannot be separated from me? Do you understand why outside of my will, bad things happen? I am the essence, God said, of all that is good and right and satisfying and joyful. If you come up with your own plan, it's going to be bad. So I need the whole universe, angelic beings and humanity to see apart from me, you can do nothing. We came in the middle of that drama. There's a bigger plan going on that we have to be aware of. Now, Jesus took this so seriously that he knew Satan's tricks. So when Satan tempted him in the desert and said, you know what you really need to do, Jesus? You need to kind of go on your own. You keep following and doing what the father wants you to do, but you're hungry, right? He wants you to be hungry. Why don't you do your own thing? Why don't you make stones into bread? Why don't you jump off the temple corner and demonstrate that you're big and bad on your own? You don't have to do everything your daddy tells you to do. How did Jesus respond? Oh no, there is only one will in my universe. It is the father's will and I will do nothing other. It's interesting that one of his first teachings to the disciples was the Lord's prayer, which says what? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There cannot be another will other than the will of God. So very serious about it. Time has now begun, obviously, and as we have seen the blast of judgment and the lights go out, Lucifer watches and can't do anything about it, and the reformation begins on earth. Let there be light. God creates man. You can imagine that Satan's like, what's going on? Whoa, 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 you guys are in my house. My house used to be really dark. My house is now light. Just because you make it pretty does not mean it's not my house. I still run this place. Now, what are you making over there? And he makes mankind. The Bible says that we are made a little lower than the angels, meaning the lowest angel, we're a little bit below that. As a matter of fact, to be technical, we are dirtbags. We were formed out of dirt and breath was blown into us. That makes us a dirt bag. Are we all clear? All right, good. Now, this little dirt bag that just got made, Satan is very unimpressed. He's looking and going, really? That's my rival? Because God starts using phrases like, be fruitful and multiply. And Satan's like, dang, there's going to be more? Gross. 
Then he uses phrases like subdue and have dominion. And Satan's like, I'm sorry, are you using my terms? Whoa, 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 whoa. Who's in charge of this place? Don't tell me that you're going to start trying to challenge me and that you're in charge of your little garden. All of this is mine. So by the time we get to the Garden of Eden, he shows up as what? The serpent. As a shimmering, brilliant, beautiful serpent of which animals had never had a problem with man. There's no reason Eve should have thought it was weird. Because all the animals were cool. Giraffes were like, what's up, right? And they just kind of walked by and they all got named. Well, now Snakey comes up and he's like, hey, you want to talk? He brings her over to the tree and he starts playing the let's question God's goodness game. Y'all remember that? Did God really say that you shouldn't eat? Man, that's rude. Don't you think you should be your own person? Don't you really think that it should be kind of your way? I mean... If you eat this, let me just tell you this. Don't I look beautiful? I mean, man, I'm a talking snake. I'm pretty awesome. All I'm saying is that if you eat of this, it's really going to go well for you because I think that God's holding out on you. He doesn't want you to be like him. So if you eat of this, you will be as God. Y'all tracking? Same exact thing that he said, I will be as God. I will. He starts putting that onto her and she starts thinking, wait a second, you're right. God is holding out on us. And bing, a third will just popped into the world. God, Satan, Eve, and then Adam. We now have multiple competing wills. What happens when wills come in? Chaos, problems, consequence, pain, sorrow, death. That's how it goes. Suddenly, with this emergence of billions of wills as people come onto this planet, mankind fell into total depravity, separated from God, spiritually dead, unable to save themselves. And the trial continues. Our world is a mess. Can God fix it? Can Satan fix it? Can mankind fix it? Let's watch it play out. Who can solve the problems only god this gives us a bigger picture on difficulty in this world does it not why because god is in a tension between two points one point is i really really love my kids and i'm really really protective i would love to come in and solve all their problems my heart And my love is so extreme for my children that I don't want them to hurt in any way, shape, and form. How do we know that is God's love? Because Calvary solved that answer. The cross demonstrates that while we were yet rebels, Christ died for the ungodly. That Jesus came, that God sent his one and only son, that whosoever would believe in him shall never die, but have eternal life. The cross, Jesus dying for our sins, solved the answer, is God good and does he love me? The answer is always yes. So what's the tension? We have a bigger drama playing out. What's the bigger drama? Multiple wills can't work. So kids, as much as I would love to protect you from everything, I cannot. Why? Because if I protected you from everything, I would basically insulate you and allow you to be a rebel under blessing. And I'm sorry, kids, I can't do that. 
Because before I can protect you from the world, I have to protect you from you. You're your own worst enemy. I need that purified out way more than I need to protect you from disease and death. Because quite frankly, kids, anything that is super important, I already took care of on the cross. Everything else is just details. But I do need you to know that you're part of a bigger drama. And that bigger drama is not just about you. It's about a great cloud of witnesses all watching and trying to figure out whether or not mankind can solve their own problems. They can't. Only I can. And the more miracles I do seems to frustrate that plan because you keep thinking everything's good. Everything's not good. Everything's bad. There's none that follows me. None that walks in my way. There is none righteous. Not even one. The only reason, kids, that you're safe and protected is my grace and my love. Are you protected? Yes. But can I stop all bad things? I will not. Because we've got to know it's got to be my way. Y'all following? Everybody tracking? All right, here we go. So there has been consequences wrecking our world. But the battle now is between us and the demonic forces. We have three enemies, the world, the flesh, the devil. Why? Because we're a three-part being, body, soul, and spirit. The body is attacked by the flesh. The soul is attacked by the world. The spirit is attacked by the devil. The devil knows he can't take your salvation away. He knows that what Jesus locks down on the cross, when he calls someone his son and daughter, there is son and daughter forever. The best hope that he has is to ruin your witness and make you ineffective. That's the only shot that he has. So all of his attacks on Christians are lobbed so that you and I might give up or not take it seriously and be distracted and do our own thing. Why? What's his goal? To try to put our will over on our heart and not on God. Yeah? All right, good. Here we go. The Bible says that the cross is the big deal. Because on the cross, he not only set us free in forgiveness, but he triumphed over the enemy and publicly brought them to shame. Why? Because they brought all their heat. Satan went, I finally have the Messiah right here in front of me. He's in the flesh. We can kill the boss's son, right? Just like all those parables. And they got him up on that cross and they were thinking it's about time. And what happened? The very act of him destroying the Messiah completely turned all of heaven and earth upside down. And became the greatest victory that God ever wrought on this planet. He changed not only what's above the earth. He changed what's on the earth. He changed what's below the earth. And I'll talk about that in one second. But let me read this because it's powerful. Thus, the love of God in Christ presented himself as the substitute. Paying the fine of the justice of God satisfying the claims of the holiness of God. Thus, 
the full vicarious substitutionary payment was made and we have a savior. It immediately follows that there can be no claim whatsoever left against the sinner whose guilt has been put upon the savior. He paid it all and there cannot be anything left to collect from the transgressor. Romans 8.1, therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God will take the believers to heaven without any judgment whatsoever as to their guilt for sin. The believer will be judged for his Christian life so that his positions and rewards in heaven shall be determined. But the question of his being in heaven has been settled on the cross. Amen? How did Jesus do it? Check this out. Let's start putting some pieces together. Satan said... I will ascend, and God said, I will bring you low. Jesus said, I will descend, and God said, I will make your name higher than all names. This is all very, very critical. Why? Because, remember, it's an upside-down concept. Jesus didn't just descend down to become one of us little dirtbags. He, after the cross, he descended where? Down into the grave. Why did he do that? Because he was proclaiming victory. Because prior to the cross, sins were still left, yet uncompletely covered. They had not been paid for. They had just been covered over. Therefore, the rule says, if you sin, you don't get to be in the presence of God. So there was a holding cell in the grave. On one side were the righteous. We call that paradise. Remember Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. On, there's a chasm fixed between them. On the other side is the place for the unrighteous that was called what? Hell. When Jesus went down after dying on the cross, he went down into the whole place, proclaimed, I did it. We are done. He took all of the righteous and said, kids, you're coming with me. And he went up into the presence of the father, leading captives in his train. He went up and they were instantly in the presence of God. That whole place was emptied out. He took the keys to death and hell. Anybody remember that? Therefore, the Christian no longer has fear of death because not only did he open up hell, excuse me, the Sheol, the death, and let out the good guys, but he locked it back down and said, no one will ever make my children go there. That's not going to happen. When he did that, he said, I run everything. As proof, do y'all remember what happened? On the cross, when Jesus died, there was a huge earthquake. Anybody remember that? The big earthquake? What happened? The tombs were opened and a bunch of righteous people got up and went right back into Jerusalem. Who were they? That is what's called the first fruits of what's to come. Jesus said, you want proof? I own this place. Hey guys, get up here. Go back in. Yeah, I have billions of those. Amen? 
Therefore, since it's been emptied out, when we die post-cross, we instantly go to the presence of God. The Bible says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's why we, in our talk, say there's two destinations, heaven and hell. But hell is not permanent. Why? Hell will be emptied out, it's temporary, into what? The lake of fire. Truly, there's two full places, the new heavens and new earth and the lake of fire. Those are the eternal destinations. All right, too much for you? All right, here we go. Here we go. Let me just say this as we dive back in and finish out Job. Let me just say this. Elisha, the prophet, was hanging out with his servant and a terribly massive enemy surrounded them. And, that, and the servant started to panic and he said, Master, look at how many there are. And Elisha said, Lord, open his eyes. And he looked and surrounding the enemy all around the rim was chariots of fire. And he said, oh no, my servant, there are more with us than there are with them. Here's what I need you to understand. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Why? Because as cool as Elisha was, at that time he never had the indwelling Holy Spirit. We have God with us everywhere we go. Amen? Amen. Turn with me to Job chapter 1 verse 6. We got some context, yeah? All right. Job chapter one, verse six, which as you're turning there, let me just say again, I need to make all these disclaimers. You guys, I believe the invisible war book by Barnhouse about 75%. There's a bunch of stuff in there. I don't agree with. I don't agree with any book fully. As a matter of fact, the two books that I wrote only about 98%. I don't know. (laughs) There is some heresy in those. I just don't know where it is, but I'm just telling you right now. I don't even agree with that dude. What I'm trying to say, everybody tends to pick up a book that I'll recommend. They're like, man, Pastor Lance is totally into, and they find the weird, creepy stuff in it. And they're like, he must be into this. No, no, I'm just telling you, it makes most sense of the biblical record. Is it accurate perfectly? It is not. And so let's be careful anytime we read that. Here we go. Job chapter one, verse six. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before Yahweh. And Satan also came with them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it. In other words, you know, here's the point. Everyone answers to God. What we need to realize is Satan can only do what God allows him to do. It's not a battle of he can overthrow. He can't overthrow anything. Pick it up in verse 8. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth. A blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. Two things to note very quickly. Number one, how does Satan know that there's a hedge on everything he has? 
because Satan's been trying to attack it since day one. Satan tried to attack him in his job. He tried to attack him in his marriage. He tried to attack him in every element of his life. What did he find out? God blocked him every time. A lot of us read this passage and we're discouraged. Hold on. There was a hedge of protection so strong around Job, Satan couldn't get in anywhere. Children of God, there is a hedge of protection about you. You need to know that. And when God opens it, notice he only opens it temporarily because God's always in charge. Let's pick it up here. The Lord said to Satan, let's play this game. Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. There came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was speaking, there came another who said the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was speaking, there came another that said the Chaldeans formed three groups, made a raid on the camels and took them, struck down the servants with a sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was speaking, there came another that said your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness, struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are all dead. I alone have escaped to tell you. Now we will talk in a future message about the depth of Job's suffering. But understand, everything was taken away. If God opens up, you are now seeing Satan's will for your life. What does he want? He wants to destroy everything. Why can't he? Because you have a hedge of protection about you. Pick it up in verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. Is that how you and I react to difficult times? He said, naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I'm going to go back. The Lord gives, the Lord taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrongdoing. Let me explain something that I'm going to highlight through the whole series. Job didn't do anything fancy to bring glory to God other than cry and say, my God. In his pain and confusion, he went nowhere else. He went to God. He didn't have the answers. He didn't launch a new ministry. He didn't do anything fancy. He wasn't on TV. All he did was cry and run to God. And from his running to God, glory rose in power. Amen? Chapter 2, verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Satan came with them to present himself. And the Lord said to Satan, so where have you been? Satan says, you know. Verse 3. The Lord said, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth, blameless and upright, 
who fears God and turns away from evil. Notice he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand, touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Can I have the prayer team come on up here? God sees the big picture and we don't. But you can be assured of this. God does everything that he does as a good God. What is best for his glory and for the believer. And you go, really? How can my hurt and my pain be good for me? I can tell you this. Job was one kind of awesome before. He was a whole nother kind of awesome afterwards. Another story. You all remember when Jesus took Simon Peter aside and said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you. And when you come back, meaning you are going to blow it, when you come back, I need you to protect your brothers. What was his point? Why did he call him Simon? Jesus always called him Peter. Why did he do that? Because he was basically saying this. Hey, Simon, Satan wants to tear you down. Here's what I'm going to use it for. I'm going to burn the Simon out because the church needs to be led by Peter the rock. Simon ain't going to lead the church. Peter's going to lead the church. So what Satan means for evil, I mean for good. Not only will he be embarrassed, but afterwards he will be ashamed that he ever attacked my child. I will use it for my believer's good because I'm always 10 steps ahead of the enemy. I know we don't get it all, but we should have some encouragement that this war is not like what you think. When God says it's done, it's done. And there's nothing the enemy can do about it. What I want to pray for is this. I want to pray that if you were drawn here by God and you have never yet allowed the cross to be true for you, if God drew you here and he said, did you hear that guy talking? I've been talking to you. I've demonstrated my love for you. I'm always seeking to protect you. I want you with me, but as long as you're doing your own thing, there's nothing I can do. I need you to know there can only be my way. I think sometimes we think that when we have to repent of what we've done wrong, we think it's the stuff we did wrong. I'll tell you what we need to repent of, doing it our way. That's what's killing us. So maybe today God is saying to you, are you ready to do it my way? Will you let me save you? Will you let me make you my child? Will you let me rescue you? I'm going to pray for that. If that is you, I'm going to pray for you in one moment. I just want you to agree in your heart. Yes, Lord, he's talking about me. For the rest of us, there's all kinds of spiritual warfare going around and we're like, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? We run to God. We praise his name. We don't have all the answers but we just always say your will, not my will. And with that, we will fulfill 
the very purpose that we are here. Amen? Amen. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, in this place, draw all men to Yourself, all women to Yourself. Lord, there is some here today that You personally invited simply because today's the day. Today's the day, Lord, where You are telling them, Your way is not working, kid. My way is the only way. I'm the one that has all the health. I'm the only one that has the hope. I'm the only one that has the saving. I'm the only one that has the peace. And as long as you keep doing it your way, you're going to be hurting. And I need you to come home. I need you to be safe with me. God, if that is us, would you open up our eyes and allow us to say, yes, Lord. All you and not us. We absolutely admit we've been doing it our way and we are sorry. Would you allow your freedom and your grace and your forgiveness to wash over us and make us brand new. Make us strong and healthy and whole. Put us on your path as we dedicate our lives to you today. And Lord, there's a bunch of us here that we're concerned about whether or not we're doing the right thing and are we making big ministries and are we trying to say the right things and do everything right. God, you already said we're going to be your witnesses whether we know it or not. All heaven is watching. What you have asked of us is obedience. So God, would you encourage us and strengthen us and open our eyes that we are renewed in our determination and passion to do it your way. Oh God, glorify yourself in us and anoint this prayer team right here at this altar. Anoint this altar that any needs that are brought here that the answers of heaven would roll. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.